And for the rest of us, if you'd turn in your Bible to Hebrews 13, we will continue our study through this book. This morning we'll be reading verses 7 through 14. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the camp. So let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Let's pray. Father, again, we're just grateful for the love that you've shown us in Jesus, that you've given to us life, that you've given to us light, that you've given to us your word, that we can read it, that we can sing it, that we can speak it to one another, and that we can hear it expounded. Father, we pray that you would enlarge our hearts to receive your word, and that, Spirit of God, you would apply it to each of our hearts. We pray for our children and children's worship. Lord, draw them to yourself. Give them faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So maybe some of you thought this as we were reading through these uh, verses, but I definitely thought it several times. Usually I will tell people as I'm teaching to preach, the first thing you do is you need to read the passage about 25 times. That's just where you start. So I was reading it, and I was reading it, I was reading it. What am I going to do with this passage? <laughs> what, what is the point? Lord, what, what are you, what are you, why is this all together in, in this single unit and trying to, to understand that and, and to grasp that? And, and one of the best things to do when, when those questions come up is go back to uh, what's the purpose of the book? What's the purpose that the author had in writing these words? What did he want to communicate to his original audience? And so that takes us back, okay, so the book of Hebrews is really a call to follow Jesus. It's written to uh, Jewish Christians who were wrestling with the, the pull that they, that they faced, the, the, the pull of their, their society to go back to their Jewish roots and to just stay there. I mean, as they left those Jewish roots and became Christians, they got persecution from the Jews, they got persecution from the Romans, and the, the, the pressure's there. They're beginning to lose relationships with their family, they're seeing loved ones that are killed for being Christians, and the pressure is huge. And so the author wants to say, you need to follow Jesus. And in chapter 6, there's a turn in, in the way that he's, he's, he's calling on them to. The first six chapters, he's really... Uh, first five chapters, he's, he's pointing out how Jesus is superior and how the new covenant is superior. And in chapter six, he says, and, and, and this is what you want to do. Keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. You've come this far. Don't go back. Just keep moving forward. And so with that in mind, just thinking, okay, so how does this all, how does that all fit here? He's giving his, his concluding arguments, and he's beginning to address in them one last obstacle that they're facing. It's been in all of it, but this is, this is the big one for them. And that obstacle for them was their culture. 
that they were, they were living in. Now, I think it's important for us to kind of understand what culture is, and I've looked for years to, to find a really good definition of culture, and mostly what I find is a description. And I think because we don't have it nailed down exactly, well, this is a culture, and because it's so broad, it's, it's very difficult for us to recognize the incredible influence that it has in our lives. Um, I found this on a Texas A&M uh, discussion about culture, and it says, and this is the best that I've seen, a culture is a way of life of a group of people. The behaviors, beliefs, values, and symbols that they accept generally without thinking about them and that are passed along by communication and imitation from one generation to the next. And I think that's just a really helpful understanding if, if, we, if we break that down and, and look at all that's involved in that. That's just, that's a lot. There are aspects of, of um, a culture that is passed on by communication, okay, that things, that things might be told the next generation. I know as I was coming up, my uh, stepfather in particular said that men don't use bad language in front of women or children. That was a cultural value that was specifically addressed in my life. This must be done. This is how we live. Presumably, to keep us from being barbarians. I'm not sure, but at the time, I was quite certain that this is what separated us. I wasn't sure what a barbarian was other than I didn't want to be one. But I knew that much. But there are other parts that you just see by example like opening up the door for someone else as you're going into the, the building. You don't have to go in first and just say, yeah, if you can get in, good luck to you. But you can open it and allow them to move ahead. And I saw that that was a value that was, that was held. But I wasn't ever told that. I wasn't told all of the different ways in which this works. But just to see, okay, so that's the imitation that I pick it up as this is a value. We see some of that even as, as we're going to look a little bit more and, and, and look at our culture here in just a moment. Well, you see, for the Jews, there was this combination that was taking place. The Jews were, were a national people, right, if you will. It was the Jewish race. It was, it, was a, it was a group of people that were a family originally, and they'd become a nation, and they had that national identity, but yet they were also a religious group. And you might have religious people within the Jews, and you might have non-religious people within the Jews, and yet they're both Jews. And this, this intermixing made it a, a, a very interesting, difficult uh, environment in which for the gospel to come in. It's not unlike um, ministry to Islam. And missionaries who work with Muslims find that it's a very similar situation in that they're dealing with, with not just the, the religion of Islam, but they're dealing with the culture that surrounds it and the community that has built this culture and trying to help people navigate through that. It's uh, our experience even with Mormonism. Living in uh, Mesa, Arizona, the, uh, I think it was the second largest uh, Mormon population in, in, in the world when we were there, and 60% of the population was Mormon. And we began to see that what the, what the Mormon church does is they build a, a community and a family and an entire culture that can exist inside American culture as a subculture. And, and yet they're also a religious belief. Now, not everybody in that culture is necessarily religious and holding to those beliefs. And so you've got this intermix between the, the religion and, and the culture. And isn't that, and, and I guess it's, and you'll have to tell me, you've, you've been here longer than I am, isn't that similar to the Amish community? 
that you have this, this blending of, of the culture and the religion, and, and they're all mixed together, and so you're, you're not sure which is which. Well, that's exactly what was being faced by these Jewish Christians in the first century. And what we don't recognize frequently is just how powerful our culture is in our lives and how the things that we accept, and that was the other part of that definition, that we accept frequently without thinking, right? We just, we just know it to be the case, such as we would immediately believe the freedom of speech is just right, right? I mean, that's, that's just, everybody's got that. No, not everybody. That's an American thing. We value it tremendously because it's been one of the foundations upon which the entirety of our nation has been built, right? And it's that freedom of speech which is so central to the way that we think and the way that we live and the way that we, we exist. It's, it's the air that we breathe. It is very much a culture in us that we value this. And if we come across someone that maybe doesn't value it, we would be very taken aback, right? Well, but then you have subcultures like Presbyterianism. You have subcultures of Presbyterianism, but, but even within Presbyterianism, um, have you noticed that sometimes the value within a Presbyterian church is that, that we're, we're not super comfortable when our hands get much above our waist, right, during worship? It just, and the higher up, the less we're comfortable with it. That it's just, and, and is, is that because there's some biblical teaching, thou shalt not lift thy hands above thy waist? No, it's just that's how we do it, right? Typically, that doesn't make it right or wrong. And we talked about that in Sunday school class today, and I love the kids. They're like, oh, either way is fine. That's great. That's great. But that's a culture that we have here among us that, that affects us, and we probably don't recognize it, but we follow it, right? That's the power of culture in our lives. The challenge can become that sometimes culture can oppose real faith, right? Sometimes culture can push us away from a personal relationship with Jesus. Sometimes culture can replace personal faith in Jesus. I can become a cultural Christian. In his uh, poem, I'm, trying, I'm not going to be able to remember the, the, the author's name. So in the, in the poem, The Hound of Heaven, there's one scene in which the author pictures the individual. And the idea is that God has sent forth this hound. Think of the old uh, way of hunting, that you send out your dogs and they run through the, 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 the animals and get them where you want to be, and then you're able to, to kill the animals. And so he sends forth his hound. God sends his hound to chase us down, that we are his prey. And so the author is writing from the standpoint of trying to run from God when His grace is pursuing him. And he talks about running into the, to the, to the community that calls the hunter their friend, thinking that they can hide in that community. That I can get in the culture of Christianity and it can protect me from having to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we see that that can be the case. We hear stories of pastors who are preaching sermons and come to faith themselves under the preaching of the gospel. But they had hidden in that culture of Christianity. Well, the Jews were wrestling with that. Another example, let me just, just say this, that uh, 
have you, you, you've heard the, the statement to be too heavenly minded to be any earthly good? And that can become a culture that we have. And what does that do? That keeps us from being radically committed to Jesus. And so we've, we've got to be aware of that, that uh, we have to at times resist our culture and instead stand in our personal faith with Jesus Christ. This is what the author of Hebrews is writing to these Jewish Christians and saying, I understand your culture. I understand how power it is, powerful it is. You're going to have to resist that to be sure that you have this relationship with Jesus. Well, how do we do that? How do we resist such a pull, such a powerful pull in our life? Well, to do that, we're going to be careful whom we follow. To be careful whom we follow. Verses 7 and 8. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Years ago, even before I went to seminary, I think it was uh, actually uh, Robin's brother Bart, his first year at seminary, uh, which was at a uh, seminary church, uh, church with seminary up in New Jersey. Um, and uh, they would have academy night, which is what they called their seminary, and they would preach a sermon to the new candidates, those who were coming, and they were hoping to go to the academy, and they were just getting started, and each of the individuals would, would uh, give their testimony of why they're there, and then there was a sermon that was preached by the late uh, Pastor Bob Martin. And uh, Dr. Martin, in, in preaching this message, he was preaching, actually, which is interesting, it's the only time I've heard a sermon that wasn't actually from the Bible, and yet, it was biblical. He was preaching on a, a section from Pilgrim's Progress, and he called it a visit to interpreter's house. And it was a challenge to those who were going to be pastors, a challenge to the congregation too on what they think about them, but the challenge to those who are going to be pastors, what does this mean to become a pastor? And he takes them to a, a painting that uh, uh, Bunyan speaks of that is in the house of a gospel minister. And he describes it in this way. The interpreter is speaking to Christian, and he describes the painting in this way. The interpreter then began to explain the meaning of the painting. The man you see in this picture is one of a thousand. He can produce children, labor in birth pains, and nurse them himself when they are born. And do you see his eyes looking to heaven, the Bible in his hand, and the law of truth in his lips? Christian nodded, listening intently to the interpreter's every word. This is to show you that his work is to know and expose dark things to sinners, even as you see him standing there pleading with men. And where you see the world behind him and the crown that hangs over his head, that is to show you that he despises the thing of the world for the love that he has for doing God's work. He will surely receive his reward and glory. Now, said the interpreter, turning his attention back to Christian, I showed you the picture first, because the man in the picture is the only man authorized to be your guide through the difficult places you're going. So pay attention and try to remember what you have seen, or else you might meet someone on your journey who pretends to lead you the right way, but in reality, their way leads to death. That's just a really long way and very poetic way of saying exactly what we're reading here in verse 7, right? To be careful who you follow. To recognize that there's certain characteristics that you're looking for in an individual that you're going to follow. And you want to be sure that this is an individual that is qualified. This is why we have the entire nomination, training, 
election and ordination process that we have for the officers in the church because we want to see are these men that God has qualified to this task before we lay our hands upon them to be sure that this is the case to the best of our ability. We live in a culture, though, sometimes, in which what we, we really want is celebrity rather than character, right? Celebrity rather than character. We want someone who's famous. We want someone who's got a big name. We want someone with a big, char- a big uh, charismatic personality. That's kind of what we're looking for. We're looking for, for somebody who's got a following. And, and we see that, that this is often the case. I remember when I was, was first a Christian, there were certain celebrities that, uh, that Christians would talk about. Oh, wouldn't it be great if he'd become a Christian? Can you think of the good that he would be able to do? And I now look back with a little bit of foolishness in my own heart and recognizing, well, that wasn't quite right. That's, that's not what God is doing. I, I do look back, and I love the words that Charles Barkley mentioned. Now, I think he missed something, but his words that he spoke, remember the old Nike ad? I am not a role model. I am not paid to be a role model. Just because I dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kids. Now, who among us would not say amen to that, right? <laughs> Especially the more we know of Charles Barkley. Not that he's a, a horrible person, but he's not ideal. And what he was trying to say is, you need to be the role model. It's not who I need to be. And what it tells us is we need to have good role models, not just follow the person who's a celebrity, not just someone who can dunk a basketball, but to follow those with character. How? Well, look for the fruit of faith. That's how we start. Look for the fruit of faith. In verse 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Consider the result of their conduct. The word consider means to, to look again. To look again. Now think about that. If you're, if you're walking down the road and, and you just kind of glance and, and you, you see someone and then you think, oh, is that someone I know? What do you do? You take a second look, right? You want to turn back and you want to give it closer attention. That's the same idea that this word considering has in mind. It's not just a glance, it's... Look at that. I'm going to look at it a little bit more closely. I'm going to really examine what I'm seeing here, and I'm going to give it my attention. That's the idea, to consider the result of their conduct. And the word result means outcome, the outcome of their conduct. It's actually used in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and I thought that was interesting. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, um, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape, outcome, result. With the temptation, he's going to provide a particular outcome, a result that enables us to endure it. I just found that to be a, a, a beautiful cross-reference to this word to understand what he's saying. To be able to consider the result of the conduct of an individual, to look at their life and to say, is that faith? Does that life bear the fruit of faith in Jesus Christ? As I was thinking of that, I thought of, uh, I remember. Uh, reading years ago the words of uh, James Montgomery Boyce. 
in his final sermon to his congregation. He was dying, I believe, of pancreatic cancer, and uh, he was speaking the last time at 10th Presbyterian Church and is trying to bring a word of comfort and understanding to the congregation. And it's summarized in, in these words. He says, should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that the God who is able to perform miracles, and certainly he can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. Amen? Above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? The answer is that he did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. And yet that's where God is most glorified. Now those are magnificent words for us to read from our perspective. They're intensely profound to hear from the voice of a man who is dying of pancreatic cancer, right? Now this is rubber meets the road faith, isn't it? This is the real thing. To consider from that perspective what faith looks like. That's going to take time to see in our leaders, right? It's going to take time to see, is this truly an individual who is an individual of faith? Is the fruit of faith present in their life? It helps us to avoid bandwagon followers, but to look at how they face hardship in their life. How do they face difficulties. As I'm looking to see the fruit of faith, what I'm really looking for, am I seeing the fruit of the Spirit in this person's life? Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Here's where I get thrown off. Goodness. Faithfulness gentleness, self-control. Is that what I see in this individual's life? Is th- are these the characteristics that are true in this person's life? If it is not, this is not someone I should be following. I should only follow a person who I'm seeing this to be the reality in their life, that God is building such character. And when I see that, what am I to do? Throw myself wholeheartedly into following everything they do and everything they ever say? Again, to quote that great philosopher, Pete the Cat, goodness no. But I can imitate their faith, can't I? And that's what the author says. Not imitate their every word. Imitate that faith. That faith that produced love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the faith I want to imitate. I want to live that out in my life. Look for the fruit of faith, but always depend on Jesus. Have you ever tried to stand up in a canoe? Anybody? Okay, so there's several of us who've fallen in the lake, right? (laughs) It's just, it's really hard, isn't it? Why is it hard? Well, because it's completely unreliable, right? It's completely unreliable. You have no idea what way it's going to be going. And if another boat goes by, uh, that's it. It's over, right? 
you're going in because it's unstable, it's hard. I think that sometimes following a godly leader is about like standing in a canoe. It can be done, right? But I'm going to depend on standing on the ground, which is Jesus Christ. That's what it's like to depend on something. I can, I can do it, but if I need something rock solid, that's Jesus. I've got to depend on him, which is why verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the t- same yesterday and today and forever. He's unchanging. He is the same. The immutability of Jesus. I find within most of us a desire to be unchangeable and sometimes an assumption that we are. Um, And the same about other people. I think I believed once and so therefore that's handled. Let me move on to the next thing. I forgave that person once so let me move on and and move to the next thing. Right? Because I got that down. Never be a problem again. I forget except two minutes later when it is a problem because I just fall back into my old ways because I'm, I'm like standing on that canoe. It's ever-changing. But Jesus is the one who is the same all the time and forever. It's interesting that for devotions this morning, I'm, I'm reading a, a, group, a, a book on sermons about hope. And the one today is uh, A.W. Tozer writing about the fact that that we change, people change. And he wrote it from another side because the other way that I think that we don't change is sometimes I assert that of that person who's done something bad and I've given up. I've given up hope. I believe that they cannot be changed. And sometimes that person I think is me but to recognize that I am not immutable. God alone is. It's only Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday and today and forever. So I depend not upon me, not upon my leaders, but upon him. I I depend on him yesterday. I just want to think about each of these terms. Yesterday. Think about the Hebrew people. Remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians. And he wants them, Jesus is the same yesterday. Who is Jesus yesterday to the Jews? Who is Jesus yesterday? He is the one who has been faithful to them to give them the covenant, right? He is the one who came to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He is the one who came to Moses with his covenant. And he's the same one that comes today with the new administration of the covenant of the grace. Who is he yesterday? He is the one who delivered his people from the land of bondage, from slavery. He is the one who heard their prayers. He is the one who heard the prayers of Abraham as he prayed for a son and he heard those prayers and he answered those prayers. He is the same yesterday and today. Who is Jesus today, particularly for the Jews at that time and for us as well, but for the Jewish Christians? He was the one who was faithful with them even as they faced persecution. He is the one who lived among them as a Jew and was crucified that he might bear their sins. He's the same, and the same forever. Forever. Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And here I believe as God, he's speaking of the Father in particular. The Father is the one who justifies. The Father is the one who says, you who are trusting in Jesus are forgiven of all of your sins. They've been paid in full. You owe nothing. He's the one who says, you are righteous in my eyes, not because I delude myself or deceive myself, but because the righteousness of my Son covers you up. And it is now your righteousness. You are justified in my sight. Who is the one who condemns? Is it Christ who was crucified on our behalf? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes. Rather, who was raised? Who's at the right hand of God? Who also intercedes for us? He's praying for you. Is he going to condemn you? Beat the cat. Goodness, no. Goodness, no. He would never condemn you. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, and forever. Be careful who you follow. Look for the fruit of faith and depend on Jesus. And the second way in which I, I resist my culture, first of all, I'm, 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 I'm being careful with who I follow. That's the first. And secondly, I'm going to stand in truth. Verses 9 through 14. Do not be carried away by varied and strange doctrines, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is to come. He says, don't be carried away. Don't be carried away. You know what it reminds me of is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, where the Apostle Paul says almost the exact same words. He says in 4.14, uh, for this reason I bow, nope, that's chapter 3, 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Sounds like the same thing, right? Saying the exact same thing. He's, he's reminding them of the same thing that the Apostle Paul was telling the, the church in Ephesus, and he's telling these Hebrew Christians, these, these Jewish Christians, the same thing. Don't be carried away by these false doctrines. Do you know what uh, happens right before verse 14 in Ephesians chapter 4? Right before it, he says that he gave some as Apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping the saints for the work of service. He begins to talk about the leadership that he's given within the church and the purpose of the leadership within the church. He's giving us good, solid, godly leaders whose faith we can imitate. Why? So that we're not carried about by every wind of doctrine. 
The author of Hebrews is saying the same thing. Be careful who you're, who you're following. Look at those who have led you. Consider the result of their faith and or, or their uh, conduct and, and imitate their faith. Why? So that you will not be carried away by varied and strange doctrines. So that these ideas won't take you away. You see, they faced, these Jewish Christians faced pressure from two different sides. They faced the, uh, the, the Pharisees, if you will, the Jewish leaders who were pushing them and saying that what they needed to do was obey the law and that's how they would be justified. That's how they would be sanctified. They were telling them that you're going to be saved by being a part of the Jewish community. They're facing the Judaizers who are saying, even to the Gentiles, you've got to become a Jew before you can become saved. That you've got to continue the Old Testament Jewish laws. And they're facing all of these false teachings that were a pressure on them to push them away from following after Jesus. A recognition of that one more time, quoting the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, and he had some really hard words to say. Verse 6, he says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be accursed. And he goes on in this book to talk about the Judaizers and the effect that they were having on the Gentile community. And the writer to the Hebrews writes to the Jewish Christians and shows them the danger of the Judaizers as well. That the church was being terrorized by these false teachers who were carrying people away with this false doctrine, leading them away from Jesus Christ so that they might put their faith in their rituals and in their, in their, their activities instead of the work of Jesus Christ done for them in completion. He's saying, don't be carried away by that. Recognize this incredible danger that you're facing. And to do that, he reminds them of two truths. And the first is that they need to find strength in God's grace. Verses 10 through 12. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now, that's a whole lot of stuff, isn't it? What in the world is, is, is he getting at? Well, it, it starts by, by understanding. He says that, um, the, the different things. He says... <clears throat> We need to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, right? He starts out that. It's not foods that are going to make us strong. It's not the fact that we don't eat pork. It's not the fact that we won't have lobster dinners, right? That's not what's going to strengthen us. We need to be strengthened by grace. And he goes on to talk about how those who uh, were, were occupied with those uh, foods and those sacrifices were not benefited. They didn't get any benefit from that. Did that save anybody's soul? Anybody ever gone to heaven because they never had crab? Right? Never happened. Never happened. It benefited them not at all. But it's grace that saved them. And he wants to understand that there is that, that distinction and, and then that they have, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Isn't that a beautiful thought? What is our altar? It's communion, is it not? And we can take of that. Why? Because we have faith in Jesus Christ. But those who serve the altar are still looking for a Christ to come. They haven't put their faith in Jesus. So they have no right to eat of that. And what does that do? That gives us all of the benefits of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Magically? No. 
but he gives it to us as we have faith. And he's pointing us to that reality, that change, that distinction. You see, the Jews and the Judaizers trusted their rituals. I'm going to look at uh, three different passages for just a moment so that we can be reminded of the, the reality of that. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Right? That image is just glorious. Can you imagine if you taught your children to wash your dishes, but they only wash the outsides? How many days before it gets really, really gross? Right? How many times until I finally learn I've got to get the oatmeal off of the inside of my bowl before I pour a new one, right? That's his point, is you're not washing the business part. This is what matters, the inside. But they're working so hard on the outside. They're working so hard on the ritual, but they're not dealing with the heart. So he goes on. He says in verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments in righteousness. I don't think that's where I was looking at going. Oh, verse 27. What do you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He's pointing out the, the, the error of just dealing with the rituals. But I think the Jews who had faith in the Old Testament understood this. Like King David. King David had committed horrible crimes, right? We recognize the murder of Uriah the Hittite. As a matter of fact, as he starts uh, uh, chapter 51 of Psalms, he says, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, and he talks about the, the sin with Bathsheba, but also the sin with Uriah, one of his mighty men. And what does he say during this, this uh, psalm of confession? He says, to God, for you do not delight in sacrifice, Otherwise, I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David got it. He understood that when they were doing the sacrifice of the bull for his burnt offering, that as the bull was slain and the blood poured out, the individual killing the animal would recognize the seriousness that this is my sin, this should be me, and would be experiencing a broken and a contrite heart as that animal was placed upon the altar and was burned to nothing. The individual offering it was to be, was to be torn up inside. And it was that inside tearing up, that, that inside brokenness that was going to be something to offer up to God. But you see, our temptation of our culture is to make it the ritual itself, and as long as I go through that, everything's good. But David knew, no, 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 no. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart. A broken and contrite spirit, oh God, you will not despise. So that even the prophet Isaiah, speaking the words of God to his people, had this to say. This is what God had to say to his people in Isaiah 1, it's going to be a lengthy passage because I, I want us to recognize that this isn't just a passing verse, but this is a, a large section in which God is talking to his people. He says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle 
and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And then he says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphans. Plead for the widows. That whole section, what's he saying? He's, he's, Isaiah is telling the people, it's not the rituals. When you want to understand the prophets, both the major and the minor prophets in the Old Testament, the primary message that every one of them is bringing is rebuking the people for ritualistic worship and not having a heart that goes to God. And we suffer the same temptation. And it's one of the things that we have to stand against. But instead, we need grace. Because Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. We need that grace. I want to skip ahead to Hebrews chapter 4. Sorry about those in the sound booth. They've got to skip two, two slides. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We need to go to God looking for that grace, not counting on the rituals, but counting on God's grace to accomplish what we need. So find strength in God's grace and then seek heaven. He says in verse 13 and 14, So let us go out to him outside the camp, this go out to him outside the camp is a, is, a, is a picture of the Jews in the wilderness in which they would, they would have their camp and that would be their city and they would go out. So we need to go out of the culture, out of the city, out of our given culture. We cannot go to him collectively. God doesn't save anyone collectively. He saves individuals. And the individuals come together and become a collective part but the collective itself is not saved. We are saved, each one of us alone. Think about it. You can't die with someone, even if you die with someone, right? Dying is the most alone thing you will ever do, except come to Jesus Christ. It's the exact same. You come to him as an individual, an individual who sinned against him, who recognizes that, and who needs the salvation that he offers through the death of Jesus, he offers it to you. Will you come to him today as an individual, not as a group, going outside of your culture, going outside of your camp, going outside of your city, that you may find him, the Lord Jesus Christ, in salvation. Come to him today. Ask him to forgive you and to cleanse you from all of your sins. Romans 12.2 tells us the same thing. He says to us, Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want to just look at that, that for section for a moment. He uses the word for world. Now, there are two words in Greek for world. The first one is cosmos, which means a world system. The second is eon, which speaks of an age. And that's the one that's used in this passage. Not a world system. He's not saying, don't be conformed to non-Christianity. He's saying, don't be conformed to any collective group but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the same message that the author of Hebrews is giving to these Jewish Christians. Resist your culture when your culture stands between you and Jesus and follow Jesus personally. To do that, you've got to be careful who you follow and you've got to stand in the truth. Let's pray. Father, the pressure is always on us to live with the collective, to fit in, to find our measure of acceptability by the acceptance we find in the group. Culture is powerful, Lord. I pray for each one of us that you would strengthen us, that we would seek to relate to you directly, that you would deal with each one of us as individuals, that you would grant to us individual, personal faith in you. And Father, if there's anyone here today who has not yet put their faith in you, I pray that you would lead them even this moment to pray, Father, forgive me because of my many sins I've committed. I can't earn heaven, but I trust that Jesus did that for me. And Father, will you receive all who have prayed that prayer? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.